0: Welcome to Shorty's, a short true crime story.
1: Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. What do you got for me today?
0: I have one story for you. Do you have a story for me? Yes. Okay, good. We have we
1: have to ask just in case just now. <laughs> now we have to ask. I had a little brain hiccup the, the
0: other week. and Yeah, well... Okay, so I've got one story that's technically two stories in one. Oh, I love those. So today, people are getting three.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Math. Yeah. (laughs) Math. One plus one. one. (laughs) I can
0: do it. Okay, so it's about 2 a.m. on December 20th, 1979, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Albert Martinko has been up all night worried sick, and he finally calls the police to report his 18-year-old daughter, Michelle, is missing. The last he knew of her whereabouts, she had attended a banquet for her high school's choir program at the Sheraton Inn, but then she never came home, which was very unlike her. Both the Cedar Rapids Police Department and Albert went out searching immediately, hoping to come across any sign of her. And then at 4 a.m., a police officer found Michelle's car in the empty parking lot of a JCPenney. Michelle's lifeless body was curled up on the floorboards of the passenger seat. She had been stabbed 29 times in the face, neck, and chest, plus defensive wounds on her hands and arms. There was no blood found on the outside of the vehicle, which suggests that she was killed inside of the car, and there were no fingerprints found anywhere that didn't belong to Michelle or her family, um, given that this was her parents' car. So the killer probably wore gloves. She was fully dressed, and the medical examiner later determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. They estimated that she died between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. And the amount of cash left in her wallet means it probably was not a robbery. The police suspected it was a male, and possibly a male that Michelle knew because it was such an intimate murder. But that's all they had to go off of. Michelle had been born on October 6th, 1961, so she was a Libra. She had been raised in Cedar Rapids and when she was really, really close to her family. She was a very sweet girl. She was really pretty. Um, she was in the high school choir and involved in the theater department and also on the twirling squad. <laughs> she was really well liked among the teachers at school, but she really struggled to maintain close friendships. She seemed to be really bullied by girls her age, and like looking at photos of her, I, I think it's probably jealousy. jealousy. She was yeah. really, really pretty. She, I mean all the photos that i could see of her she looks like a beauty queen from the 70s oh, like super f- yeah <laughs> yeah very like fashionable her hair is very like farrah yeah. and like she just she looks really really pretty especially for like a high schooler
1: so i'm and she's on the twirling team yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and what, I- what even is that it th- where they twirl the baton Twirling
1: squad. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, I remember in high school, side note, um, my ex-boyfriend's dad came home and he was like really, really sweaty. And I asked him, Why why are you like that? (laughs) And he was like, Oh, I just came from spin class. And I didn't know what spin class was at the time. And as soon as he left, I go to my ex-boyfriend. I'm like, I think it's so cool that your dad is like confident enough to like do that. And he's like, What do you think that is? And I'm like, Oh, it's where you hold like the like twirlers, like streamers. (laughs) And then you do dance class and you like spin and jump across the mat. And he's like, no, it's literally biking. <laughs> so whenever I hear anything that's like spin class, twirling class, <laughs> twirling team, I immediately think that.
0: Literal twirling. I think of literal twirling. <laughs> All we so do sweet. is twirl here. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, I could see where she was bullied, but. She was really determined to focus on her studies. She was going to go to the Iowa State University where she wanted to study interior design. So she was kind of just like focused on the future, even though I'm sure it was hurtful that she was bullied. But over the course of the next few months, police interviewed hundreds, hundreds of people and none of which panned out as suspects. Two witnesses were questioned under hypnosis and described seeing someone loitering near Michelle at the mall. A white man in his late teens or early 20s, around 6 feet tall and weighing 165 to 175 pounds with brown eyes and curly brown hair. But despite, I guess, how specific that was, uh, nothing more came of that. A woman came forward and stated that around 2 a.m. on December 20th, she drove by the JCPenney parking lot. She made it a point to look at the lot as she passed because she said that her daughter had worked at the mall and often had car trouble. So it was just a habit of this woman's that like anytime she would pass that lot, she would just look over. She said that she saw two cars in the lot, one of which was Michelle's. A man was standing next to the open driver's side door of Michelle's car. But unfortunately, nothing came of this lead either. It turned out that after the banquet on the evening of the 19th, Michelle had asked a couple of girls if they wanted to join her on a shopping trip to the newly opened Westdale Mall. Michelle needed to buy a new winter coat and wanted to stop in to see her co-workers at the store that she worked at. But the girls said no, so Michelle went by herself. That makes me sick. I know. Several witnesses remembered seeing and interacting with Michelle that night, all stating she was in a seemingly normal and chatty mood. And the last time that she was seen had been inside the mall near a jewelry counter sometime between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. For the first year or two, there seemed to be many leads, but then all of them proved to be nothing. And eventually the case went cold. Michelle's parents, Albert and Janet, sued the mall in the mid-1980s, stating that the mall was negligent because there wasn't adequate security the night their daughter was murdered. They end up losing that lawsuit, and Albert passed away in 1995, and Janet passed in 1998, both of them dying without knowing who took their daughter from them. But then, in 2018, authorities retested a blood sample that had been taken from the back of the dress that Michelle was wearing the night she was killed. Through familial DNA, detectives tracked down the possible killer, and after taking a straw that he had been drinking out of, they tested his DNA against the sample from the dress, and it was a match. On December 19, 2018, so that's exactly 39 years after Michelle's death on the anniversary of it, Jerry Lynn Burns was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He had been 25 years old and living in Iowa at the time that he killed Michelle. During the trial, the prosecution had gotten a search warrant to see Jerry's internet search history. In 2018, he regularly searched for porn containing blonde women being raped, stabbed, strangled, and images and videos containing sexual intercourse with murder victims. However, the judge didn't allow that to be introduced as evidence because of the almost 40-year separation between Michelle's murder and, and the said internet searches, but... Um, We're not in a courtroom, so I get to to judge and bring it up. (laughs) I get to bring that up so everybody knows that that's what he was doing in 2018. What a creep. Jerry was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Michelle's sister Janelle said that as gratifying as this conviction was, she just wishes that her parents had been alive to witness it. So that's the story of Michelle Martinko's murder and how familial DNA caught her killer almost 40 years later. But we're not done yet. Because during the initial interview where police arrested him, Jerry was completely emotionless. He denied ever seeing Michelle and then completely out of nowhere, he mentions the name of a missing woman. The two cases happened 16 years apart and the cops talking to him had not brought up this other woman. And so Jerry said something like, quote, oh, I saw something on the news recently, something about Jody Hoosentrout. It was like a really big story. trying to make light conversation with authorities. I guess so. Jodi Hoosentruit was born June 5th, 1967, so she was a Gemini. She had grown up in Minnesota, but after graduating from college, she accepted a job at a news station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She worked there as a news anchor for a while, but then she sort of like bounced around to a few different news stations, eventually settling down in Mason City, Iowa, where she became very well known as the local news anchor. On the morning of June 27th, 1995, around 4 a.m., a producer at the station became worried when she realized that Jodi hadn't shown up for work. So the producer calls to make sure that everything's okay, and Jodi picked up, totally breathless and apologetic. She said that she had overslept. She was going to grab her stuff and just run out the door. However, by 6 a.m., the station needed to get a fill-in for Jodi because she still hadn't shown up. Another hour went by, and they tried calling her a few more times, but there was no answer. So her colleagues called 911. The police went to Jody's apartment building to do a welfare check and instead they found a crime scene in the parking lot. Jody's red Mazda Miata was still in its spot but a clear struggle had taken place outside her driver's side door. Items from her purse, a single red high heel shoe and her car key were scattered on the ground. And the key had been bent very significantly which was odd and so it's probably like she put the key in the door and then was like attacked and it got like bent. Oh, okay. But then somehow it like still came out of the door. There were significant scrape marks on the ground that might have been related to someone being dragged. But there was no blood and no sign of Jody. They found a partial palm print on her car, but nothing ever came from it. Three neighbors stated that they heard a woman scream in the parking lot roughly around the time that Jody would have been leaving. But none of them had done anything. And that like really, really irked me because if you hear a woman scream outdoors at any hour, but especially like at 4 a.m., I can understand if you don't want to go outside or you don't want to be involved or you're you're not comfortable with it. I'm not even suggesting anybody ever do that. But Pick up the friggin' phone though. You can just call 911. And like if it's nothing, then it's nothing, but better safe than sorry.
1: I just always think of things of like, if that was me, how would I want someone to react to this and yeah. always treat every circumstance like that?
0: And it's just- it really is just better safe than sorry. Worst case scenario, it's nothing and you you reacted too strongly. But what's the harm in that? That's what the police are for. That's what 911 is for. That's what they're paid to do. Yeah, just, just see. Just look into it. That was 27 years ago and nothing has come from the investigation. Jody vanished that morning and has never been seen or heard from again. Her family and friends in the community of Mason City have done everything to keep her memory alive and fresh in the media, and they hope to get answers one day. Jerry Burns mentioning her by name during his arrest for the murder of Michelle might be nothing. He could have just been chatting nervously and mentioned the name of another well-known missing local woman. Or maybe he abducted and murdered Jody that day and mentioned her because he has a guilty conscience, or maybe he mistakenly thought the police would link him to her. But either way, he has since denied being involved in her disappearance and is aggressively trying to get a new trial. He claims the police digging through the trash to get a straw he disposed of is unconstitutional, even though the judge in his murder trial had already ruled that discarded property can't be deemed private property. In the years since Michelle's murder, Jerry Burns had gotten married and had kids. His wife committed suicide in 2008, and then so eerily... On December 19th, 2013, exactly 34 years after Michelle's murder and five years prior to his arrest, Jerry's cousin Brian Burns mysteriously disappeared and has not been found. But apparently authorities looked into it and Jerry is not a suspect in either scenario. Whether or not Jerry Burns had anything to do with Jody's disappearance, we may never know. But the similarities are eerie and worth noting. They were both young, beautiful, blonde women living in Iowa and attacked in parking lots, but it was just 16 years apart. And that's the story of Michelle Martinko and the possible connection to Jody who's in troop.
1: Yeah, he did it because even the fact that his like porn search is, they said blondes, right? Blonde, specific, blonde women specifically. being attacked, mm-hmm. raped, and stabbed. Yeah. I mean, he obviously has an M.O., whether he's acting on it or not. And if the two are so similar, then that is clearly something that he carried out. It's like the odds of it not being him would be wild.
0: And I also just cannot understand. I guess in in this case, he thinks he might be able to get a new trial. He thinks there's still a chance that he could be free. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, no, no, because he got a life sentence. So it's like, if your life is already done, why don't just you do the decent thing
1: and just solve some mysteries for some people? Just be honest. And also realistically, there is a chance that he didn't do it, but because he does have this, like f- he fetishizes that sort of crime, yeah. wanting to talk about it with authorities is something that intrigues him. Yeah. So that could also be a possibility of like, so uh, this one lady, like, what do you know? You know, and wanting yeah. to like relive that and revisit all of those yep. details. Yeah. So either way, he's a freak. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's for sure. That was really well done. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that disturbing story with me. You're very welcome. Like you do every day. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) Well, I have something very disturbing for you now. Oh, okay. So today I'm going to be covering the mysterious death of Sharon Williams. Okay. St. Charles, Missouri is located right across the river from St. Louis. It's very cute and small and considered to be a very safe town. They only see about one or two homicides a year, which is really wow. <laughs> shocking. Yeah. Back in 1983, when the story takes place, it was mostly just farmland and everyone knew each other. One evening, a car had been run off the road and gone down the ravine. The engine was still on and there was a fire on the driver's side of the car. When Deputy Ed Copeland arrived on the scene, he climbed three or four feet down to where the car was and carefully entered. He said he could hear a gasping sound and something almost like a gurgling noise. He was barely able to register where the sounds were coming from when he saw a woman stuffed up underneath the dash of the car. Deputy Copeland tried getting a response out of her, but she wasn't speaking. He knew this woman needed immediate medical attention. He tried opening up her airways so that she could breathe, and that's when he noticed that she was wearing a wig and had been pushed out of place, most likely due to the impact of the crash. And that's how he saw that she had a severe head wound in the back of her skull. Oddly enough, her clothes had been soaked in gasoline, and there was a trail of gas that led a few yards away from the car, but the gas tank had not been ruptured. I don't know how this is even possible, but Deputy Copeland and the paramedics described her as being jammed up underneath the dashboard, and I'm assuming that meant like the car was facing downward and she had somehow just with the the angle was was hidden underneath. Did she maybe not have her seatbelt on? Yeah, but it's just more the fact that it was like she wasn't just on she wasn't just on the floorboards. Yeah, she was jammed was like, up underneath. Yeah. <laughs> she was carefully removed from the car and rushed to the hospital. Paramedics found the woman's purse inside the car, and they were able to identify her from her driver's license. Her name was Sharon Williams. She was 43 years old, a mom to two boys, and very well liked. She was active in her church, and everyone knew her. I'm going to refer to um, Deputy Ed Copeland by his first name from here on out because it's just it's just too wordy. Yeah. Yeah, we know Ed. Yeah, we know Ed. <laughs> we know him by now. We know now. Ed well. We love him. Ed called the Williams home to notify her husband Jim that she had been in a really bad accident. Jim was picked up by a patrol officer and brought to the hospital. Unfortunately, her injuries were too severe and there wasn't much the hospital staff could do. Her husband Jim made the call to take her off life support the very next morning. The sheriff said that Sharon had passed away due to the car accident, but it was very obvious to everyone that there was a lot more to the story. This was not an ordinary car accident. Deputy Copeland dissected every element of the accident reconstruction report and couldn't make sense of what happened. This is important because it can determine how fast the car was going, when and where, and why an impact occurred. The reconstruction report stated that Sharon's car had traveled along a small ravine, the car collided into a tree, and the impact caused Sharon to fall underneath the dashboard. I did not agree with this evaluation at all. He believed that her car drove off the road at such a high speed that this caused the injuries that she sustained. The deputy reported that the front of the car was only slightly dinged up, which is inconsistent with a car impacting with a tree. But the reconstruction report was still accepted and the case was closed. Ed's gut was disturbed the lingering suspicion that Sharon had been injured prior to the accident, but Sharon was now buried and he tried to move on. The case haunted him for three years. That is until a badass medical examiner comes to St. Charles. Dr. Mary Case was called up by a detective in the St. Charles Sheriff's Department to be a fresh set of eyes on the case. She is one of 15 examiners in the country that has been training in both forensic pathology and neuropathology. Wow. She is a, I know she's a badass. She has a knack for detecting the subtle ways in which someone might have been murdered. She picks up on things that many wouldn't look twice at. One of the first things that Dr. Case notices is that an autopsy was never performed on Sharon. What? No, she was just (sighs) bait. So basically her body is rescued from the car, brought directly to St. Joseph's Hospital, which is located in St. Charles. She survives for 11 hours, even after sustaining a massive head injury. And then her husband takes her off life support and then she's buried. This case was never treated as anything more than a tragic car accident. So an investigation never took place. Dr. Case was determined to find out what really happened to Sharon Williams. Based off of the x-ray and CT scan, you can see that the skull fracture is located in the back of her head. But if she had hit something, then the damage wouldn't be to the back of her head. Dr. Case requested that Sharon's body be exhumed. Her request was denied. But Dr. Case refused to take no for an answer and took matters into her own hands. She what, like did she grab a shovel? <laughs> she performed an illegal exhumation. <gasps> she called up Sharon's mom and informed her that she doesn't think that her daughter was killed in a car accident. And she said that even though Sharon's mom isn't able to legally make this acceptable, she wanted to inform her out of respect. Sharon's mom didn't hesitate whatsoever and she gave Dr. Case her blessing. Dr. Case went to the funeral home and requested that they dig up the casket. The casket was then brought to her facility so that she could perform an autopsy. Dr. Case was accompanied by a few detectives that were there to photograph evidence and any potential findings. But because the body was illegally exhumed, none of the evidence would be usable in court. Mm. But how she saw it was, if I find any incriminating evidence, I'll put the body back and then I'll find a way to legally exhume the body and present the evidence. Oh, she sure. just... <laughs> What? she's good. Oh <laughs> she's <my> good <laughs> if I had known that
0: like you could do that kind of thing then I would have become a medical examiner
1: <laughs> oh for sure she made me rethink everything about my life. <laughs> Sharon's body had been in a casket for three and a half years but was relatively preserved. If you're establishing that an individual has died from a car accident, then the injuries the person sustains has to coincide with the damage to the car. yeah so if a car ran off the road and hit something large like a tree, You'd expect blunt force trauma injuries on the body. And if Sharon had died in this manner, then it would be realistic for her to have suffered from other injuries in other areas besides for her head. But that's not the case. She had a few superficial scuffs and cuts on her face and then a significant wound on the back of her head. So those lacerations and abrasions made sense for someone in a car crash. But Dr. Case couldn't make sense of the skull fracture. Dr. Case was able to establish that there was nothing in the car that could have caused such a massive hemorrhage and fracture. It appeared that the fracture was caused by a blunt object and that she had been struck twice with that object. She concluded that this was no accident. Sharon Williams had been murdered. In 1987, three and a half years after Sharon's death, the case was reopened as a murder investigation. It's a well-known fact that most people aren't killed by people that they don't know. And most of the time, the husband or boyfriend did it. According to retired homicide detective, Mark Mendelson. you have to start at home and then work your way out. So Jim Williams was the first on that list. Jim was well-respected and described as a big teddy bear. He was friends with a lot of people, like high up people, politicians and judges, which scares me. (laughs) Yeah. Soon after the death of his first wife, Jim remarried another woman named Joanne. Before meeting Jim, Joanne had been married to a man named Walter Scott. Weirdly enough, Walter Scott was reported missing just 10 weeks after Sharon's accident. Oh. (laughs) Coincidentally. It's a total coincidence. Detectives suspected that there was a connection between the two cases. According to Ed, coincidences don't exist in law enforcement. Joanne reported her husband missing on December 27th, 1983. Walter was the lead singer of a band, He was an amazing performer with a commanding presence. The ladies loved Walter. Oh, did they? (laughs) They loved him. He had quite the local following and that started kind of going national. He started getting national attention, which I think his wife didn't love. Walter disappeared as the band was getting popular and they had a big performance coming up in St. Louis at the Fox theater. According to Joanne, they were in the kitchen talking and she mentioned that he needed to get some paperwork done on the car. So he got his shoes and jacket on, said goodbye to Joanne and the kids, and then left the house. He never came back, and he was never seen again. Joanne tried filing a police report at 2 a.m., but in the state of Missouri, you have to be missing for 24 hours to be reported missing as an adult. The next day at 7 a.m., a sheriff came to the house so that she could fill out the missing persons report you know, in most cases, it's always noted that this person wasn't the type to just like disappear and never check in. And yeah. then you think to yourself like, but who is? Yeah. <laughs> Walter was that guy. Yeah. There are yeah, some people Walt- who are. <laughs> yeah. Walter is the type of guy that did that. He okay. would say he was going out for cigarettes like real quick at the store and then he'd be gone all night. Okay. <laughs> so if anything, it was actually really suspicious of Joanne to want to file a report yeah. just hours after he left. Yeah. Yeah. It's not unusual for someone to overcompensate in a way that makes them seem like they're not involved in the crime. Yeah. Like calling the police and acting concerned is like a very common method. His disappearance was not a top priority because Walter was a musician that traveled all around the country. He hung out with a rough crowd and he was a womanizer and like funny enough, but like not funny. Ironic <laughs> <at all. laughs> His band was called Bob Cuban and the In Men and they had a song on the Billboard Hot 100 called The Cheater. The Cheater. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to sing that? I'm not going to sing it for you okay, because I don't fine. know the beat, but it's like, uh, look out for, th- oh God, I can't say it without kind of giving it like a little bit of a a beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, do it. Give it, do it look, with a little beat. Okay. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> look out for the cheater. Make way for the full hearted clown. Look out for the cheater. He's going to build you up just to let you down. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good. <laughs> Thank you. I needed like a channel to be able to get my musical talents out. I'm using this to kind of like launch my musical career. And I could see why. Yeah. It's like a stepping stone for it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was talking and chalked it up to him skipping town and joining another band or possibly a jealous husband or a boyfriend found out about Walter sleeping with their woman. Joanne sent some of her friends to the airport to see if he had left his car there. And lo and behold, his Lincoln was parked in the garage There was nothing found in the car and without a body, a criminal investigation couldn't take place.
0: Why did she have to send her friends? Why couldn't she? Because she's weird.
1: (laughs) Everything is weird and suspicious. (laughs) So Sharon Williams dies in a stage car accident. Walter Scott disappears and then their spouses get married and live happily ever after. (laughs) Like right after. Oh, but did they live happily ever after? People like that are never happy. Investigators discovered that when the deputy had gone over to Joanne's house to fill out the missing persons report, Jim Williams was there.
0: In like what capacity? Just hanging out. Like, did he claim he was a
1: friend or like? <sighs> he was just there. And it was like clear that the two were having an affair. <laughs> oh. And their neighbors confirmed this. It oh. was just a well known fact in the neighborhood. Jim was always buying her jewelry and books, and they didn't even try to hide their relationship. The day after Walter went missing, Walter's parents went over to the house and found Jim Williams once again inside, looking at Walter's jewelry. Walter's parents cut off any relationship with Joanne because they knew that she was sketch as hell and something to do with this. I'm sure that's exactly what they said, too. (laughs) You're sketch as hell. You're sketch as hell, Joanne. (laughs) 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 I love that. a criminal reporter. (laughs) Journalist, if you will.
0: You're sketch as hell. You're being sketch
1: as hell, Joanne. So sheriffs go to Florida to visit Jim Williams' son, Jimmy Jr. He was in prison at the time. The sheriffs tell him, your mother didn't die in a car crash like your father told you. She was murdered, and we think your father had something to do with it. They ask him, if your father was to get rid of a dead body, where do you think you might be hiding it? And he responds, well, have you looked at my dad's cistern? I had to look up what a cistern was, and it's a tank that stores water, like a well. Yeah, I figured (laughs) it was something. (laughs) I figured
0: it was something like that. I didn't know, but I wasn't gonna admit that either. So thank you for sharing.
1: I had (laughs) to clarify. Anyone (laughs) listen, don't feel don't feel silly for not knowing what a cistern is. (laughs) But Jim's cistern had a concrete lid. It's about twenty feet deep and ten feet in circumference. In December of 1984, Jim had a flower pot built over the cistern. (laughs) (laughs) No man just like has like an itch. to build a flower pot especially over something like that yeah a search warrant was granted and the plan was to uncover the cistern it was encased in concrete and once it was cleared they looked inside well a body was in there no (laughs) yeah i was gonna try to build it up a little bit more but the body was in there and the body was wearing a blue jogging suit the very outfit that walter had been wearing when he went missing walter's id was found next to his body Walter's body was in a wet environment for a few years, and the way the body decomposes in the water almost makes it crumble like bread. <laughs> oh, that was Dr. Case's words, not mine, just you know. Okay. The skin is gone and the bones fall apart easily. Walter's hands had been tied together with a rope and the same rope had been wrapped around his feet and ankles five times. X-rays showed that Walter had been shot in the chest by a rifle, and then he was tied up. It was more than clear that Jim Williams had murdered Walter Scott and he was arrested. All of the gathered information was given to the prosecutor's office, and a trial took place nine years after the murders. In November of 1992, Jim Williams was found guilty and convicted of two counts of murder. He was given life without parole. Ed knew that Jim didn't act alone. Someone would have needed to drive the car the night Sharon was killed, while another person picked them up from the scene. One person would have had to drop off Walter's car at the airport while another picked them up. Joanne was given a five-year sentence because even though it was obvious that she was the second person They didn't have enough evidence like physical evidence to pin the murders on her Both of these individuals thought that murder was a better solution than divorce Jim killed Joanne because he had a successful business and he didn't want her getting any of his money through a divorce God forbid your wife and mother of your two children gets a dime And Joanne said that Walter wouldn't agree to a divorce So I guess shooting him was just her other solution
0: it's always low IQ people who find each other and
1: then come up with these dumbass plans. dumbass plans. I'm also one of those people that doesn't think money is more important than like, you know, love or like a human life. Oh yeah. <laughs> Call well, me crazy. <laughs> yeah. I- but when a man has a business, I get that you worked really, really hard, but your, the your wife and mother of your two kids has also worked very, very hard to provide and take care and raise your children. Mm-hmm. So when it becomes, it comes to a point where you don't want to be with somebody, but it's more important that she doesn't get a dime of your so-called hard-earned cash. Yeah. <laughs> and you murder her. It's so pathetic. It's disgusting. Jim died in 2011 from a heart condition while serving his life sentence, and Joanne died in 2019 at the age of 75. If Dr. Case had not illegally exhumed Sharon's body, Jim would have been able to get away with not one, but two murders. So the moral of the story is, trust your gut and don't let anyone get in your way. Hell yeah some cases fire me up and I don't know why we get a lot of cases where the husband or boyfriend obviously did it and it can feel repetitive yeah but then there's some that just get me going I feel the same way I was just thinking about that yesterday as I was writing
0: uh, a new story I'm doing and I just was just like there are certain stories that hit me hard and and they just they trigger something even if I have no connection
1: to anything within the story and it speaks to you and I and I don't I wish I was more like Dr. Case, but the fact that she was able to do something so ballsy, like that potentially ruins your career. And she has worked her ass off her whole life to get right. there, but she felt so strongly about something that it was worth risking everything for. And that's something I wish I was a little bit more like. And when it comes out to be successful, yeah, that's so mind blowing to me that like I think that like re-energized me. Yeah. <laughs> We should all be aspiring to be like Dr. Mary Case.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's not too late. So it's not t- too
1: late. Turn, turn your life around. <laughs> so Exhume some bodies. Starting today, <laughs> if you
0: want to go exhume a body, you go do that. You go
1: do it, sister. No, not really,
0: though. Don't. No, no, no. But just, you know. Legally speaking, we're not telling you to yeah, do that. Yeah, we're not telling you to do that. And we are not
1: going to do that. But um, it's a metaphor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash shorties podcast this episode was hosted by ashley brumley johnson and annie katarina